Amen. Hey, thank you, Kevin. Again, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Um, and thank you for joining us here in person and on Facebook Live and later on the podcast. Glad to have you listening along uh, here as well. Uh, Dean, I appreciate you mentioning one of my hobbies, which many of you know is biking. I enjoy cycling. And what I like about it is also that I can tie it to something greater than myself. And one of the gifts that we've been able to be a part of in the last years in our community is um, cycling events that help raise funds and interest for things going on in our community. In fact, I, I kind of ran the numbers the other, the other month, and I am honored to have been a part of events that have raised over $150,000 over the last several years for work in our community and really around our nation and our ministry partners. One of them was a trip to Harvard Grad School last fall, and we went up to Harvard because we're crazy and we wanted to ride to Harvard in the fall. We wanted to ride to Boston in the fall. We went up there because Harvard is partnering, is trying to create a, a partnership of leaders for faith and education advancement, partnering people together. And so a group of us rode up there. Harvard was pretty taken with the idea and loved, loved what we did, and so they made a short little video. So I just want to invite you into that for a minute, and then I want to talk about that. But here's what it was like for us to get up to Harvard quick. Short 30-second clip from Harvard thanking us for doing that and just being a part of what we're doing. And it was pretty cool to be part of that. Some faces probably look familiar to you there if you can see through all the, the biking gear. And what happened right after that video was shot, right after we were standing there with, um, with Dr. Irvin Scott and Pedro Rivera, the Secretary of Education of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Orndorff, Superintendent of Pequot Valley, um, we went down and Aaron Conahan, who works at the school district of Lancaster, is kind of their community school's liaison. Um, those three people... Dr. Orndorff, uh, Secretary Rivera, Aaron Conahan from the school district, and myself went down to be interviewed on a panel by Dr. Irvin Scott at their little convening. It was a small group there, but we had a, we had a small little gathering, kind of pre-conference gathering. And I was sitting there on the stage or whatever, you know, in one of these stools with those other three people, um, and we were being asked questions, and we were all interacting easily in the conversation. And then at the very end, there was time for one more question, and a student raised his hand and asked this question. They said... Um, can you give me, as a student in the Grad School of Education, can you give me one um, principle or tip for leadership? And I really want to hear from Secretary Rivera and Dr. Orndorff and Mrs. Conahan from the School District of Lancaster. <laughs> and immediately in that moment, what I felt was, okay, this is what it feels like to be cut out of the space. This is actually, believe it or not, what contempt feels like. And that's the intent of contempt. And this person, I don't think, had an ill intent, but it immediately cut me out of the space. And the message that was being sent is, there's, other, there's three people up there who are involved in the real work of educating our kids in significant ways. And there's one pastor up there who just tells people about God and whatever that is. So I want to learn about leadership from people who are actually making a difference. I want to learn from leadership from people who actually achieve something. So can the three people up there who are educational leaders please tell me about leadership? 
Now, they didn't phrase it that way, but immediately the host and the moderator felt the tension in the room in his own way and said, that's a great question. Why don't we have everyone answer that? But immediately, I'll tell you what I felt, immediately a quick, a quick pain of, of embarrassment and shame ran through me like, maybe I don't belong in this space. You don't want me here because you don't want to hear from me. You don't think I belong. Why? Because of my faith. Because I don't think that you think that the way I see the world is as reasonable as the other people up here on the stage. Because I don't think that you think that it's actually a reasonable thing to believe in God. And if you have ever grown up in a world, you have been in that situation too. You maybe weren't on the stage with me in that space, that doesn't matter. But you've been in school with your friends. You posted on social. You've had people critique other people about their faith or wonder about the foolishness of what they believe. And you have felt cut out. What kind of foolishness do you really believe? Is it really reasonable to believe in God? Or do you Christians just get together now and then and don't question each other and don't think intellectually about anything and just kind of go along with the crowd and it benefits you, it benefits your business, it benefits everything else. But come on. When I want to know about real work, I'm going to ask someone who sees the world in a very evidence-based way. So this morning, the last question I want to get after in this series called Big Questions That Shape Your World is this question of, is it actually reasonable to believe in God? Is it reasonable to believe in God? In fact, is it a reasonable thing that can actually, maybe even is more reasonable than not believing in God? Is that possible? And so to do that, here's what I realize. I cannot, I cannot argue for the reasonableness of Christianity while using the Bible. It becomes a circular argument. I can't appeal to the Bible's authority while using the Bible to appeal to its own authority, if you know what I'm saying. So this morning, in the same way as I started it, I'm going to just finish with a little, with, with some scripture at the end, but I want you to know, fundamentally, at Grace Point, we are shaped by the authority of the scriptures, even though this morning in my message with you, we're going to be talking around the idea of, is God someone who, is it reasonable to believe in God, but I want you to know I'm not mining this from the scriptures, not because I don't believe in the scriptures, okay? but because it would be circular argument to do so. Okay? So with that being said, <clears throat> is that a, with that as background, I um, happen to have these flowers up here with me today. I don't know if you noticed them. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed me yet. You maybe only have been looking at the flowers. So it was Valentine's Day this weekend, right? And um, these flowers are going to help us talk through this idea of reasonableness um, and reasonableness of existence. So these flowers can teach us a couple things. And I want to look at them and have them teach us five things about how we see our world and how we see what these flowers can teach us. And I'm, again, I just want to give credit to Tim Keller, uh, wrote the book, Making Sense of God. I've already referenced that many times. He's helped shape my thinking in this whole series. So these flowers, think about these flowers for a minute. And I want to consider five things relative to these flowers. First of all, as I think about these flowers, we have a question around beginnings. We have a question around beginnings of anything that's in our world, and particularly these flowers. Where in the world did they come from? Now, some of these actually look in sorry shape, to be honest with you. There's one over here that I wonder, you know, how long has it been out of the ground? It's about dying. But I wonder where they came from, and clearly they came from the ground somewhere, maybe a greenhouse somewhere, but let's go further than that. They came from a seed, I would have to assume, or they came from a bush, they came from a seed, and then I have to ask the question further, where did that seed come from, and where did the first seed come from? And we ask the question about matter and all that we see in the world, where did they come from? Where did things begin? 
Christians believe, of course, that everything began with a personal God who crafted, had his hand involved as a creator God. The secular world will say that, well, this began, this original beginning is from either one of two places. One, an infinite kind of regress of causes. Just keep tracing things back and back and back and back and back, and there's an infinity to that cause. In other words, we can't find the original source. To say, well, okay, but you can't get something from nothing. That becomes a challenge. The other reality, the other way that sometimes we'll answer this, is that matter always existed. So the secular world will say, Matter always existed, or there's an infinite regress of causes, both of which I would say, well, if that's true, there has to be something supernatural that started that. What started the first matter? What started the first cause? How in the world did we get these? No matter how you look at it, even in the scientific world, you're going to have to say, you're going to have to believe in something above or super beyond nature to be able to identify beginnings. For the Christian, they say, there was a God who personally created. Is it reasonable? You get to decide. The flowers teach us another thing. They teach us about design. There's a world in which only certain things can live and have life. Our world, our universe, and you may have heard this, is fine-tuned to the point where we have one in billions of trillions of a chance that our world could sustain life. From the gravitational force of our universe to the amount of oxygen in the air to the exact distance from the sun and on and on and on and on. If you can imagine thousands and thousands of dials tuned just right to the millimeter to sustain life, that is the world that you and I live on. That is the world that these flowers grew up in. They are alive because everything is fine-tuned to a kind of degree that is ridiculous to imagine could happen by chance. It's almost as if it's, I think, NBA All-Star Weekend this weekend. Imagine lining up all the NBA players in the league on the free throw line and asking just one of you, could you please hit a free throw? And imagine all of them missing. You'd have to ask the question, well, that was by design. This is some joke you're playing. Or opera singers, all the opera singers in North America, please hit the first note of the Star Spangled Banner. You would imagine that at least one of them could hit it, but imagine if none of them did. You'd have to say, well, there's something else going on there because the likelihood of all of them missing that note or all of them missing a free throw was so ridiculously out there that there has to be design to that failure. As it is, Christian would see, for the design of the world in which we live. In order for the world to be designed just the way it is now for us, you'd have to ask the question, come on, <laughs> what's most reasonable? Maybe there's a God who designed it just like it is. For the secular scientist, a secular scientist will say, well, here's another way to think about this. There could be an infinite number of universes in which if you need billions and trillions of universes for there to sustain life, imagine there are billions and trillions of universes and one of them sustains life, and that happens to be ours. I'd say that's possible. But is it the most reasonable? There's no scientific basis for that. It's a theory. It's a faith statement, not a scientific statement. You have to ask the question, what's most reasonable? The flowers teach us about design, but they also teach us about this. They teach us about morality. There is a kindness to giving and receiving flowers, right? There is a kindness to it. And imagine, it might be easier to imagine this in the opposite way. Imagine that there was a boyfriend who broke up with his girlfriend so that he could date his girlfriend's best friend. And on Valentine's Day, he decided to send his ex-girlfriend a bunch of roses, except dead ones. Just a reminder of their relationship. Why do you have a reaction to that? 
Why does it even matter to you? Why does that feel wrong or even maybe slightly evil or just mean? Why do you have a moral reaction at all to that? Because morality, if based in the scientific world, to be honest, it is more logical that I would dominate you than to serve you. It's more logical that I would kill you than to love you. Because the scientific world demands survival of the fittest. Why do you have a moral response to giving or receiving flowers or even this idea of sending dead ones to someone that you no longer like and rubbing it in their face? Have you ever seen like nature shows where like moms eat their children? You know what I mean? These wild animals. I mean, not people, okay? Not people, not people. I mean, wild animals eating their children. Why? Because there's, there is an amoral component to it. That's just nature. But why are you different as a human being? The fourth thing these, teacher, these flowers can teach us is this, this idea of consciousness. See, you have seen these flowers, but you also are having a reaction to them. You are aware that you can see them, and they create a response in you. If you've received flowers, you may feel remembered, you may feel loved, you may feel thought of. If you didn't receive flowers, you may feel the opposite of all that. If you should have sent flowers, that's a whole other thing, okay? Science, science cannot explain the relationship between what I see and what I feel. There is no scientific, natural, or secular explanation for how it is that I have a conscious reaction to the flowers that I see. It just doesn't exist. Really, all that science can tell you is if you feel loved when you get flowers, listen, it's the chemicals in your brain. Sorry about that. So your chemicals have been stirred up. Just wait, there could be another guy who can stir up your chemicals more. And he may come along soon. And when your chemicals get more stirred up by him, then you're going to have a stronger chemical reaction. You can call it whatever you want. Science will tell you, you are just a combination of molecules, atoms, and cells. You're just a big chemical reaction waiting to happen. But inside, you know, that doesn't satisfy. Christians will say, consciousness? You're aware of that? Why do you think you're aware of that? Maybe you were made in the image of a God who is an idea-making God who is creative in this way, and you are made in this image. Flowers will also teach us this, fifth thing. That is this idea of beauty. I think they're pretty beautiful. But beauty is never defined by practicality, is it? In fact, if you've ever given a bad gift to your wife on her birthday or Christmas like I have, You've given a practical gift. No one is ever wowed by how many hours this will save them in the kitchen, right? I thank you for giving me this new vacuum cleaner. I once gave a car seat to my wife. That's a true story. I can tell later. I won't even try to defend myself. I'll give no context. I'm just going to drop it and move on. And it wasn't something I consider a beautiful gift. Because no one is ever wowed by practicality or moved by practicality. Beauty is gratuitous. Beauty is in abundance. It's, it's over and above. These flowers provide beauty. Beauty has no point in the secular world. What is the point of it in the natural world? Why does it matter? The secular world cannot place beauty in any space other than it's just there, but it frankly doesn't matter. For the Christian, we see beauty, and we see a God who made beauty. 
We think of Psalm 19. We think of a Psalms and God revealing himself all through Scripture as a God who is a creator of beauty, who has created this amazing world that we're in, and that beauty draws us to something beyond ourselves. We see this, and we don't think practicality. We think, man, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. So the Christian world has a response to all of these things that the secular world has a different response to, and the question becomes, which is the most reasonable way to make sense of the data in your world? Which is the most reasonable way to make sense of the data in my world? Now, with all that being said, here's what I would love to be able to do. I'd love to be able to take these ideas and kind of run them like a, a laboratory test, do a case study of a life of someone who would follow a Christian worldview and someone who'd follow a, a secular or naturalistic worldview and be able to run their lives, you know, all, you know, run their views all throughout life and then look at them and say, what is this, you know, how does it work? How do both work? It reminds me of a book I read in college, sociology class, um, and I can't remember the title, but it had to do with green people. It's kind of a neat little book, and this fanciful and made-up um, clan of people, group of people who were all green, and we learned about group dynamics, we learned about authority, we learned about crime, we learned about all kinds of things from the green people who lived on some planet, I don't know where. But it was a beautiful way to help us think differently about the world in which we live. And I wish I could do that. I wish there was a case study that I could take you on, but I, I can't. I think the best thing that I can do, though, the closest thing that I can do be just tell you the story of someone's life who got pretty, pretty close to this idea of being able to observe Someone who sees the world in a Christian way and someone who sees it in a naturalistic way. Langston, I want to make sure I get his name right, Langdon, excuse me, Langdon Gilkey is the name that I want to talk to you about. Langdon Gilkey was born in Chicago in 1919. He grew up in a very, very privileged home. He studied at Harvard and graduated magna, magna cum laude, if I said that right, um, in 1939 uh, with a degree in philosophy. And so Langdon went over to China to teach English. And while there, the Japanese overran his area, and he was taken prisoner. And he served two years in an internment camp. And his story of what happened, he wrote about in a, in a book, and his account is going to be summarized by me this way. When he was taken into this internment camp, he walks in and he sees a place that's about two and a half acres in total acreage, and approximately 2,000 people kept in, in prison in that space. The walls had electrified uh, barbed wire all around with machine gun armed soldiers on the watchtowers dotted all around that wall. There were approximately 20 working toilets for 2,000 people. By working, I mean it was a place to go, but none of them flushed. So there was a constant line for, for that. Everyone realized pretty quickly it didn't matter if you had a degree in anything, or if you had money anywhere, or if you had a family anything, you were stripped down immediately to just another human being. You could accrue nothing, you couldn't work for anything, and nor could you maintain your own privacy. And over all of that hung this constant threat of death from the soldiers who were right nearby. Food was scarce. Their bed, their living space, they had a bed, and they had 18 inches on either side, and then three feet at the foot of their bed for all of their personal possessions. That was the summation of their world. And in that space, Gilkey began to think about how does the world work? How do people work with one another? 
How does this world work? If everything is stripped away from you, and everything is stripped away from me, and we function in our most bare and raw condition, and as he would put it, the thin veneer of morality is stripped away, what are we like? He walked in with a worldview as would you, and his view was this, that human rationality saves the day, that the courage the ingenuity of the freed mind can bring peace and progress to humanity. He was a naturalist. He was a secularist. He believed strongly in the power of the human will. And he began to see this evidence right in front of him. In fact, he would write about, said, you know, there were people who were solving problems immediately. We began to learn who did what in their vocation outside the wall. And so some people were assigned to sanitation duties, and other people were assigned to cooking duties. And some people who had been actors and actresses outside began to build a stage and have a space for the delivery of the arts, even in the middle of this camp. Some people, he said, I was so amazed by the ingenuity of people who had no training in certain things. He said he was convinced even more and more that we are indeed such ingenious people. And he said some people who had never held a trowel before began to shape their own stoves through these, these bricks that they could find and created enough of a working stove or oven there that they could actually make a, a moderate-looking cake, you know, believe it or not. And these moments of watching the ingenuity and, 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 and fight of people convinced them again that, indeed, the human potential is limitless. And then he began to see something else. And he began to see these same people stealing what little bread was available in camp and creating arguments and fights around all kinds of things. And he began to wonder and began to believe that not just material world is important, but the moral component of this society is equally as important. It's not just important to make sure that we have proper sanitation and can bake bread, but if we don't have a moral component, can't figure out how to work together, we have a significant problem. He was actually appointed to be the, the head of the housing committee. They created a committee because they organized. And the problem was presented to him, and this was a moment that was a turning point for him. Eleven men were stationed in one room, and there were nine in another. And the rooms were the exact same size. Dimensions exactly the same. Eleven in one, nine in the other. And Gilkey thought, well, good grief, this is not complicated. Human reason wins the day. Human reason leads to progress. If we could only be reasonable people, be very naturalistic and evidence-based around how we see the world, we could make progress as humanity. Religion is kind of an extra fluff thing that isn't necessary. If only we could be reasonable. And this is the perfect example of what is reasonable. So we went to the people in, in um, building 49, who had nine people in there and 11 over here, and he presented the problem incredibly rational problem to solve. There's 11 here, and there's nine here. We're gonna move one over to your block. We will then be fair. To which they said, don't ever come talk to us about this again. In fact, if you put him in our building, we will throw him out. And if you come back here to talk to us again, we will throw you out as well. And he thought, well, listen, if you will do this, Think about how fair it will be in the future. Think about when you will need bread if you don't have any and someone will give you bread because you've done this. Think about 
how future equity will be important to you. And he realized that what he was appealing to, what he was asking is that, will you please be rational? And he asked the question, why would you be rational? Well, the only reason for you to be rational is because I'm going to appeal to your selfishness. Rationality appeals to that only. Rationality says, please, think about your future. There may be a time you in the future will need more food, and then you can get it. But as he left that meeting and realized they're not budging, he began to laugh to himself, and he said, well, this is foolish. My worldview is foolish. If rationality appeals to selfishness, then the right decision for the people in Building 49 is to be selfish. Why in the world would they give up their precious space for the people over here? They said, sorry about their problem. That is a bummer. We see it. You come back to us again, it's not going to go well for you. And they didn't budge. And he began to see that the rational mind, the naturalistic view, will not contribute to human progress. He believed that if you are only rational, your heart will change to see how equity will improve our world's condition. But in that moment, he began to see, no, 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 no. Something else has to change your heart so that you are more reasonable with one another. And that's where he met an Olympic champion, Eric Lydell, Chariots of Fire fame, in that same encampment. A believer in Jesus Christ, Eric Lydell, stood out to him among anyone else as one who gave of himself to serve the youth, to create a space for them to play games, to be active, to have hope. He began to see him working and began to say, there has to be something more. My hope for this life and for humanity as a civilization has to be anchored outside of just selfishness and rationality because rationality alone will not change the human heart. And Gilkey wrote this after his encounter with Lydell. He said this, human beings need God because their precarious and contingent lives can find final significance only in his almighty and eternal purposes, and because their fragmentary selves must find their ultimate center only in his transcendent love. That there had to be a transcendence. There had to be something that drew people out of their current lives, that drew them out of where they were, that drew them out of their selfishness, that drew them out of this, and as Gilkey will say, that the rational mind, when left to itself, will always lead to a self-centered world. It will always lead to what is best for me. And it is only when the thin veneer of morality is stripped away from us in our world and we are brought down to nothing, you have nothing, you can possess nothing, you have no privacy, that we begin to see the rational mind stripped down for what it becomes. The naturalistic view stripped down for what it is, a view that continues to feed upon itself. And he said it is not that clear outside of these walls. It is covered. It is covered with a thin veneer of morality. In addition to Lydell in that camp were also other Christians. There were other missionaries. There were priests. And Gilkey will talk about they were just like everybody else. And this is a nuance that's very important because Gilkey would recognize religion itself doesn't solve the problem. You don't just get religion. Religion, in fact, can make it worse. 
So he says this, he says, Religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism or their pride is automatically solved. You don't just get religion to make things better. Rather, it is there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Insofar as human pride may win the battle, religion can and does become one of the instruments of human sin. What he's saying is, I have seen people abuse their religion. You ever feel that? You ever feel the weight of shame and guilt? You ever hear people say, "Uh, excuse me, I think your skirt is too short. I think you're listening to the wrong music. I think the beat of that is a little off. It's not quite Christian. I think the movies you watch aren't quite, quite right. I don't think that the way you're raising your family is and begin to judge and critique you in ways that are far from the grace and mercy and love of God. People who wield religion, Gilkey will say in this way, are really using an extension of the pride of their human heart to drive in an incredibly hurtful way. But there's more. And he said this, insofar as there in that space, the self does meet God. And so can surrender to something beyond its own self-interest. Religion may provide the one possibility for a much-needed and very rare release from our common self-concern. That maybe there's hope, he's saying. Maybe there's a chance. This world could be different. And it is in that battle between seeing God and seeing myself. This is why Tim Keller will write that, in short, if we're going to live rationally, and use our minds well, we need new hearts first. The secular mind, the naturalistic mind, will not win the day alone. The heart needs to change before you get there. This is why I love what Jesus says in John 13. Jesus just puts it this way. He talks about what he's come to do. He said, a new command I give you. Love one another. Love one another. The command I give. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Where does this show up in the internment camp? It will never show up with the extension of the rational mind. It just doesn't. But for Jesus, this is the call and the appeal that Christians have. This is why I think it is the most reasonable way to see the world. Because the only hope for seeing beyond ourselves is to look outside of this world and to see that there is a God, a personal God, who made this universe as it is. To give us life, beauty, design, consciousness, morality. And who sent his son Jesus that he could come and he said, my desire for you is to love each other so that you're loved, just like Eric Lydell. You're loved in the middle of a world that is so self-interested and it doesn't look that way, but that your love like Lydell will stir up the hearts of people that they can see there's something different and more. But the more isn't just in being a better person or being more rational. That isn't the more. The more is that there's something beyond. The more is that there is a God in heaven who has created this world and it is an incredibly reasonable way to think about your world and about mine, about your identity, about your hope, about your freedom, about your vocation, about your career. It's an incredibly reasonable way to feel. And so if you feel like I did on that Harvard stage, cut out, set aside by those who ask questions or those who poke at your faith, those who make you feel a little ashamed for maybe not being quite as smart or intelligent as they are, 
maybe not quite seeing the world in as strong an evidence-based way as they do, I just want to tell you that there is an incredibly reasonable way to see this world as Christians. Not thinking less of our faith, but actually thinking more deeply about how this world works and how God as a heavenly father created, sustained, gave us life, hope, joy, beauty, and sent his son that he might say, my hope for you is that you can love and invites us to the only place that I know in this world where we can actually be saved from ourselves. That is to see Jesus Christ as the hope of life and life eternal. So, as I began this message, I asked the question, is it reasonable to believe in God? Is it reasonable for you to place your faith in God? You get to decide that, ultimately. But I will just tell you, I know of no more reasonable way to think about the world, how it works, and your part in it, than to see a God, a loving Heavenly Father, who has created it and sent His Son, that you may feel, that you may know, what love really looks like. If you want to have that conversation more, that's one I would love to have with you. Thank you for being part of our Big Questions series. I hope it's been helpful for you. Next week, Pastor Greg is going to start a new four-part series called Standing Firm. And as a cliffhanger, I'd love to have you come back for that as well. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning to stop in the middle of our days, pause and regroup a little bit, and think again about the nature of the faith that we hold ourselves. And I pray for us as people who engage this world, both in school and at work, with our families and our neighborhoods. And if we call ourselves Christian, I pray that you would give us another reminder of the, the strength, of the faith that we hold. Another reminder of the call to love. That our love will, like Lydell's in that concentration camp, in that internment camp, excuse me, will be a kind of love that draws to something beyond ourselves. So we thank you, God, for being a God who is so great, who is so powerful, who created, who sustained, who gave life, created beauty, allowed us to experience and feel consciousness, gave us a basis for morality, designed a world in which we can live, all of this under your good hand, and sent your Son to this world that we may experience a relationship with you. And so I pray that you would remind us again of your favor, your kindness, and your love for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.